Hi. Uh, today's reading will be taken from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 30. Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the long, to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your ad adversary who is taking you to the court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, James. If you can, uh, we didn't project the Bible reading uh, because we uh, are hoping that as people come in, they grab a, a Bible uh, from the back. But if you didn't have a chance to grab one, uh, could I just ask the ushers to run and give to the people who don't have a Bible? Because it's a long passage and it's a hard passage. So I think it would be great if you could open up your Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, if you could just raise your hand and Kay will run to you. So we are going through in the summer the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to one of the most difficult passages uh, in, this, uh, in this series. So let's pray that God will be gracious to us and that God will speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired, that it is alive. Uh, Lord, and as we come to it and as we submit to it, we pray now you would breathe your life into these words and make them living words uh, that will change the way that we think, uh, not just the way that we think, the way we live. Lord, these are difficult words, and so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would uh, speak to us gently and graciously. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So it's uh, uh, on page 786, Matthew 5:17 through 30. I'm sure you've heard this before, that the tip of an iceberg, the tip that you see is only about 10% of the entire thing. This means 90% of iceberg is hidden. It's not something that you can see, and from the tap, top 10%, you can't actually imagine what the whole thing looks like. In a way, that is how the kingdom of God, the laws of the kingdom of God, what Jesus is saying is related to the Old Testament. Old Testament laws and the entire, entire Old Testament, uh, even the Old Testament God, in some ways, that top 10% is so different uh, from the rest of the thing that some people actually mistaken it uh, for two different things. In fact, in the second century, Marcion, a guy named Marcion, became one of the first heretics of the church by saying actually that the Old Testament, is diff- Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. And when he came to this passage, uh, passage uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says he fulfilled the law, he actually just took it out. Some actually changed the sentence later on. I've come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. They just changed it completely, convinced that Matthew was wrong. Often, we don't go that far, but we do conveniently ignore the Old Testament. We don't read it. Often people don't preach from it, giving the impression that Jesus has nothing to do with the Old Testament. But his words are clear. Verse 17, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not even the smallest letter should disappear. In verse 19, And whoever sets one aside or uh, literally loosens one of these laws, these will be the least in the kingdom of God. What does it mean? that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And that word in verse 17, to fulfill, is literally, John Stott says, to fill. Uh, Like, uh, please fill this cup with water, to fill it with content. You see, the Old Testament gave us a hint of what is to come. It was the top 10%. It was the, what was visible at the time, top tip of the iceberg, but its fullness. The full intent of the law, the fullness of the law, had not been revealed. And so Jesus came to show us what that whole thing meant. So that when he's done, you could see what the Old Testament law was really about. What the whole of the Old Testament was about. And when he's done, he would take us to a greater righteousness. So he goes on to say in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus isn't throwing shade at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's not trying to embarrass them. He's not saying that they are bad people. In fact, he's praising them. After all, if the Pharisees were known for anything, they were known for their keeping of the law. Many people ignore difficult bits of the Bible, lots of parts of the Bible that that, that don't suit them. But actually, the Pharisees took the whole thing seriously. They scoured through the Old Testament and found that there were 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions, and they wanted to keep them all. If you ever feel smug against them, I mean, just ask yourself, how often do you fail to keep the Sabbath? How often, how many of us still struggle to tithe? 
How many of us still uh, have stolen things from our workplaces or lied? How many of us still use the Lord's name in vain? Not the Pharisees, not the leaders of the first century Judaism. They kept them all or they died trying. But Jesus says keeping these commandments, well, that was just the 10%. In fact, that that is not enough. Jesus says that there needs to be depth in our obedience of the law. Our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And verse 20, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven unless we do so. What does that mean? Well, in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he explains and then he gives examples. And this is how we are to be salt and light of the world, if you heard last week's sermon. Take a look at verse 21. He gives this example. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law correctly interpreted the uh, Sixth Commandment as not being about capital punishment, right? It's not about justly killing somebody or killing people during a war. It was about unjust physical murder. Well, Jesus says its scope and its intentions were deeper than that. He reveals the rest of it, 90%. He tells us what it has always meant, what that sixth commandment has always meant. This law that was about murder in its fullness is about not having any hatred, any contempt, any anger against anyone. And of course, there is such a thing as righteous anger. When Jesus saw uh, what sin and death was doing in the funeral of Lazarus, he was angry. He was angry at sin and and, and death and what it was doing. And when he saw, when he went to the temple and saw that the place of worship and repentance was devolved into marketplace, he was angry and he drove the, uh, the money changers out. When we face injustice, when we face sin and evil in the world and we don't get angry, actually there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with us. We should be angry at the injustice that is in the world. But that's not what he's talking about. And we also know that most of the times when we get angry, it's not about those things. Despite the reputation as a safe city, and Hong Kong is, I think Hong Kong is also an angry city. (laughs) I used to belong to uh, the basketball uh, league when I first came to Hong Kong. I, I wasn't good enough, so I quit. <laughs> but it was just a whole bunch of angry people. <laughs> there were a lot of foul going on. But, and, and you know what it was like in the MTR, uh, M- MTR during traffic hours. I've done this. You're in a hurry. Uh, and so you get on the left side of the escalator and you start walking up and then until you come to a point where there's somebody in, standing right in front of you on the left side of the escalator uh, checking his phone. And don't you just want to shout at him and go, get out of the way. And there are all sorts of things that sets us off. It might be someone cutting you off in the traffic while driving. Someone backstabbed you at work. Or your boss blames you so that he could escape looking bad. You might have been slighted or disrespected by your family member or your child. You might get angry at other people's selfishness or at least their lack of awareness of others around them. I don't know what sets you off. 
But how do you react to it? On the MTR, you might throw a death stare, right? A stare to, uh, to a person who bumped into you. You know that look, the one that says, I want to hurt you. <laughs> you might actually say something. You stupid, you fool. You moron, which is the word that's used in verse 22. You all know a Greek word. That word uh, uh, is moros, uh, you fool. And with these words, we want to diminish them. We want to say, you're nothing to me. You want, we want to put them in their place, you empty-headed, stupid person. And before, we thought that murder would put us in danger of hell. But Jesus says in verse 22, anyone who has that sort of feeling, anyone who says to another person, you fool, is in danger of hell. And Jesus says we must do something about these relationships uh, that were severed because of our contempt and hatred and anger. Verse 23 to 24 says our reconciliation with brothers and sisters should be our highest priority. Highest priority that if we think of someone that we should apologize to, even in the middle of the church service, we should go and do it immediately. That's partly why we start the service each week with confession and peace. We want to say, actually, we want to give you an opportunity to think about who you should apologize to and wish them peace. And that's... Uh, and if there are people who are taking us to the court, we ought to try, to, uh, try our best to settle the matter before it goes all the way. That is what the fullness of the law about murder was really all about. The Sixth Commandment wasn't just about physically killing someone. It was about what could eventually develop into murder, right? That seed of anger that if fertilized and watered and placed in the right situation would become murder. So is there anyone or something that you can't forgive, that you're still angry about? Is there an anger that you're nursing? Some people seem to enjoy being angry at others, right? And they use it as a motivation to succeed. Friends, Jesus talks about hell more than any other person in the Bible. And Jesus says, whoever has this sort of anger, even this would endanger you to the fire of hell. And what's true of murder, he also says it's true of adultery. As well, Jesus says in verse 28, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery in his heart. These are devastating words, aren't they? I do meet with men uh, for all sorts of different reasons, but the, the pastoral thing that comes up again and again is the issue of lust in our hearts. I know of no man who does not struggle with lust, and I'm fairly sure that it's prevalent among women as well. Part of it is, I think, the sinfulness of the culture. It seems unavoidable. When I went to the orphanage in Bongti two years ago as part of our mission uh, trip, all I saw there were orphan children, fields of tapioca and cows and some rice paddies. Right? The orphans had no TV, no internet, uh, no uh, magazines even. Some of the older girls put some uh, stuff on, on their faces to not to get so dark, uh, but they weren't too concerned about their appearance. There was hardly anything that objectified women. But even from Mongti, on my way back to Bangkok, I started seeing the billboards on my way back and advertisements everywhere. And sex sells. 
It's everywhere in Hong Kong as well. In airports and MTR stations, magazines, newspapers, TV, pornography is also readily available freely and anonymously more than any other time in history. Not only that, we daily interact with women and, and girls, right, who might be dressing up provocatively. Of course, it's okay to look beautiful, but I wonder how many of you, how many of us, has given, how many of us have given into the culture and have objectified themselves. But obviously, this passage isn't about how women should dress. It's about lust, which Jesus says is what the seventh commandment was all about. Actually, this picture is probably not helping, so I'm going to put it away. Friends, sex is given to marriage it's a gift and sexual passion within the marriage is to be celebrated and we only have to look at a book like song of songs to know that actually god is uh, positive he celebrates sex if you read song of songs it'll make you blush it's got things in there that you wouldn't want your kids to read but sexual passion outside of marriage is adultery Jesus says, it's okay to admire beauty, but it's not okay to take the next step of thinking about it, fantasizing about it. That is adultery, Jesus says. And he says, we should do something about it. We should take radical uh, steps to stop it. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. In a different place, he repeats it. If your feet make you stumble, then cut it off, he says. Of course, we're not to take this literally. If we did, then who would have eyes? Who would have ears? Who would have hearts? But it is to be taken seriously since he warns people with the threat of hell again. We are to take the drastic steps to prevent ourselves from giving into lust that's in our hearts. And this is how John Stott put it in his commentary. What does this involve in practice? Let me elaborate and so inter- interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because of temptation comes to you through your eyes, objects you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were not blind, and so you could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. In other words, don't look at things that will make you lust. Cut out the source of your temptation. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off, cut it out, cut out the things that will make you lust. Cut off your feet. Don't go to places that will make you pray to temptation. I imagine it's terribly, terribly inconvenient to live without, literally, eyes, feet, or hands, right? If you don't have eyes, it's inconvenient. If you don't have hands, it's super inconvenient. If you don't have feet, it, 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 you will, uh, it'll be inconvenient. But that should also be true if we take these things metaphorically. Right? If we're not looking at things that will, will inflame our desires, not to go to places that we know will tempt us, not to do the things that will test us, it will put us in inconvenient situations. It might mean not watching TVs or uh, movies. 
uh, that everybody else is talking about. It might mean putting uh, software on your computer that blocks out certain uh, sites, even if they're legitimate sites. It might, not be, it might be not going into places that your friends are going on the weekends. All these things will be super inconvenient. But friends, do you want to play with the fire of hell? Or do you want to be like Christ? Even as I say this, I know that none of this is easy. This week, I was thinking about not thinking about lustful thoughts, not thinking lustful thoughts. I wanted to obey Christ's teaching, and you can imagine how that might have gone this week. Of course, just the thought of not thinking about lustful thoughts made me think lustful thoughts. You know, sometimes the very thing that we want to do actually tempts us. Sometimes the law that makes us, uh, uh, makes us do the thing, uh, sometimes these laws will make us do the things that we don't want to do. And Paul talks about that. He knows about it. The Bible knows about it. He says in, uh, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Is the law sinful? Certainly not. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. He says that when the law, you shall not covet, came into his life, that his sinfulness sprang to life as well. That it made him covet even more. You see the problem? We can't stop being angry. We can't stop lusting just by thinking about not doing them. Often thinking about not doing something awakens our sinfulness, and we actually end up doing the things that we didn't want to do. Friends, the Old Testament law was good. Jesus' fuller revelation of what the law was all about was, is great. It's even better in that it shows the depth of God's holiness. Uh, and his desire for us. But if we just have the law, it will lead you to, con- to the conclusion that it's impossible to obey these things by ourselves. Paul, in the letter to Galatians, will say that we were held in custody of the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3 verse 23 to 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came. You see, the law, the tutor, the path, it's the path that was to lead us to the conclusion that we are trapped in our sin. We are trapped in our sinfulness even as we try not to sin. But remember the Beatitudes? That's how the Sermon on the Mount started with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, the, are those who mourn. Why? Well, those who recognize themselves as sinners. Those who know that they cannot be holy on their own. Those who look at themselves and start mourning for their sinfulness. They will look to Christ. They will see what Christ has done for us. The law will lead us to Jesus. 
You see, Jesus didn't just come to reveal the fullness of the law. Let's go back to our passage and take a look at verse 18. Take a look at 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and the earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He didn't just come to reveal to us the fullness of the law. He says that none of these things will disappear until it is accomplished. They are done. They are fulfilled. That, that, that standards are met. You see, no one could accomplish God's law, not the 10% version or the fullness that Jesus revealed, but Christ did. What was impossible for us, what we were powerless against, Jesus wasn't. He accomplished and fulfilled the fullness of God's law. He lived it out. His righteousness surpassed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and it matched God's own holiness. But he died the death of a murderer. He died the death of an adulterer. And every part of his body was thrown into hell so that we might be called blessed, that we might inherit the kingdom of heaven, so that we might be mourned, we might be comforted in our mourning. Friends, the change in us doesn't come by thinking that we could do better, by trying harder. The change in our lives come when we admit that we can't do it by ourselves, that we are sinners beyond our ima imagination. When we bow before the cross and look to Jesus Christ, who died for us, that's when the change will come. Because at that moment, when we look to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and will change us from inside out. At the moment we look to Christ, as long as we gaze at Christ Jesus, we will be free of anger and lust. So this week, don't try simply not to be angry. Don't try simply not to lust. Fill your mind with, minds with Jesus. Think about what he has done. Walk around empty heart thinking about what Christ has done. Fill your minds with Christ Jesus and the truth of Scripture. And as you are filled with him, you'll be free to forgive. You'll be freed from lust. Let's pray. Lord, we look at these words and they are so challenging to us. And Lord, we thank you so much for your son who was tempted in every way like us but did not sin. And we thank you that he died our death on the cross. Help us to gaze at him. Help us to look to him. Help our minds to be filled with Christ, that we might be joyful, that we might live the life that you'd like us to live. And we pray this week and for the rest of our lives, by the power of your Holy Spirit, our minds will be transformed by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.